what we've established so far working through this chapter in Luke 12 is that we receive the gift of the kingdom. It is a gift. There's nothing we can do to earn or achieve the kingdom. We receive it as a child receives a gift. But then we must continue this conversation because that's not the end of the story. We receive the gift, but then as recipients, based on our reception of the gift, we are called then to do. We are called to act and enact, to participate in that kingdom that we have received as a gift. So it is a gift, we receive it, but then that gift calls us to a particular set of actions. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas has said that a God who forgives sinners without giving them something to do is a God of sentimentality. We receive the gift, but then we are called to a particular set of actions. And I think this idea is given expression in the text that we're going to explore today. So we're going to camp out initially in Isaiah, and then we will move at the end of our time to the gospel text where we've been throughout the last month. But Isaiah 5, that's where we're starting. And we find a great little story here at the beginning of the chapter. We'll just jump right into it, begin reading in verse 1. It says this, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it, cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and heaved out a wine, hewed out a, a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So here in chapter 5, we find Isaiah's introductory remarks concerning the sin, the failure, the apostasy of Judah. These introductory remarks of Isaiah are reaching their conclusion. And those introductory remarks from Isaiah reach their conclusion with this poem that we've just read, this song of the vineyard, which would be performed to draw the audience in, to grab their attention, and to make this important point. And this is what we read. I'm going to sing this love song for my beloved, that is God, about his vineyard. You see, my beloved had this vineyard, and it was set in a prime location. It was on a fertile hill. But not only was the location that my beloved chose for this vineyard, not only was that ideal for producing a plentiful harvest, but my beloved also put in the effort, made the proper preparations to ensure that there would be an abundant harvest. He got rid of the stones, tilled up the soil, and put a fence to provide protection around the vineyard and went a step further in providing protection, even built a watchtower to protect from various threats. So with all of these things adding up in the song, you would think, I mean, with the prime real estate and the choice vines that were chosen and all of the intentionality and the expertise that the beloved brought to this vineyard, you would expect what? You would expect a great harvest. And that's exactly what my beloved expected. But instead, when it was time for the harvest, he arrives at the vineyard and 
Instead of choice grapes, he finds only wild grapes. Grapes that were sour and not even fit for consumption. We continue reading. So already this poem is starting to turn to the dark side. Verse 3, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So this song is inviting the listener into the role of judge, and the tone of this little ditty is already getting progressively darker. What began on an incredibly joyful note is now rather somber. The beloved is now asking, what more could I have done? I did everything right. I chose the right real estate. I chose the right crop. I I tended to the soil. I, I made sure all of the surroundings were ideal for a productive harvest. And instead, got these wild grapes. Is it my fault? I went through all of the appropriate steps to ensure that this would be a great harvest. And of course, the audience here is being drawn into this role of judge, and they're being set up to make this judgment. Well, of course, it's not your fault. You did everything appropriately. There is something wrong with the vineyard. It's not you. Verse 5, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. So the beloved says, this is what I will do. I am going to allow judgment to rest upon the vineyard that I cared so much about. I'm removing the hedge, the protection that I have provided. It is going to be laid to waste. I'm not going to tend to it. I'm going to allow thorns to grow up and choke out all life. There isn't even going to be any rain to replenish the soil. Now, understanding where this is heading, the message of Isaiah, we, we can grasp that this is, a, of course, pointing ahead to the foreign invasion that is coming for Judah. But the poem is getting darker and darker and darker, and then it reaches its climax, the darkest point, as Isaiah reveals, well, actually, this isn't about a vineyard after all. This is about you. So we find they're in a similar position that David finds himself in when confronted with the prophet. And the prophet gives him this scenario, and David pronounces a harsh judgment on the guilty party. And then the prophetic word that comes for David is, well, you've just pronounced judgment on you because you are the one guilty in this scenario. This isn't about the vineyard. This is about you. And you now have pronounced judgment on yourselves. You are the vineyard. This is how I have prepared you, God says. I prepared you for good works. I prepared you for good actions. I prepared you for justice and righteousness, but instead you chose a different path. 
Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God is saying, I planted you. I nurtured you. I prepared you to be my people. I have given you this gift. And I was looking for you to act in return. I was looking for justice from you. But instead, I found bloodshed. I was looking for righteousness, but instead, an outcry. You were called and you were supposed to be a people of blessing to the entire world. But not only have you failed to produce good fruit, Instead, you've produced the fruit of bloodshed, of violence, and injustice. So violence, injustice, and a lack of righteousness in Isaiah here, these are the reasons that this judgment is coming down upon Judah. They were supposed to be a people who would bless the world, but instead, injustice abounds. And because of that, Things are going to go badly for you. So clearly, this idea of justice and righteousness, this is a big deal. It's the reason for judgment here. And if it was just Isaiah 5 and maybe a couple of other places, maybe we could rush past this and forget about it. But this is one of dozens. This is a small and seemingly insignificant instance among dozens and dozens of places where this is emphasized. This is a central requirement of the people of God. So as we discussed last week, the kingdom is a gift. It is a free gift, nothing we can do to earn or achieve. But how we then live in response to the gift we have received, that is the Christian life. And central to the Christian life is justice and righteousness. These things that are mentioned right at the end of this song of the vineyard in Isaiah 5. One thing we find throughout the Old Testament especially is that God is concerned about very specific issues that are victimizing very specific people. And what we also find is it's not just his own people that he is interested in pursuing justice for, but justice for all people. God hates injustice. You find this repeated time and time again. God hates injustice. He has even defined or described or named in relation to his hatred for injustice. You see a very simple example of that in the Psalms. In Psalm 68, verse 5, God is described in this way. God is the father of the fatherless. We could name God in relation to his desire to protect the widows. This is who our God is. Now, what we also must understand when we begin exploring this idea of biblical justice is that justice and righteousness are connected. They cannot be separated. They cannot be understood independently of one another. As Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann has said, the the holiness tradition of Leviticus and the justice tradition of Deuteronomy always have to be held in tension. We always have to hold these 
at the same time. In fact, both Hebrew and Greek, the same word in those respective languages is used of both justice and righteousness. They have to be taken together. And I think this is a particular challenge in our day and age as people are pushed further and further to extremes, further entrenched into our various camps. We have tended to choose one or the other. We choose to go to one extreme or the other. So either holiness, the Christian life, discipleship, either that is about righteousness, pursuing right living, getting rid of personal sin, or we go to the other extreme. Holiness, the Christian life, discipleship is about pursuing justice in our world. So the content of my life personally, that is my business. It doesn't really matter as long as I am pursuing justice for others. And I think the problem is that when we go to either of those extremes, we have settled for something, a vision of justice, a vision of righteousness that is incomplete. They have to be taken together. Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul gives voice to this idea. As he is urging his audience to put to death what is worldly in them, he goes on in verse 8 to say this, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So true justice and true righteousness involve putting off something, getting rid of sin in our lives, even personal sin, but it also involves putting something on, participating in justice, taking up certain actions on behalf of those who are entrenched in systems that are destructive. We put off unrighteousness, we get rid of sin in our own hearts, and we then put on the character of God. And what is the character of God? God is a father to the fatherless. God is a protector of widows. We put on the character of God who hates injustice. Isaiah wrestles with this tension between justice and righteousness at the beginning of the book in chapter 1. Verse 16, we read this, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. So this is reminiscent of the idea of righteousness. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. And then it continues in verse 17, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. Cause, excuse me, I can't read. Plead the widow's cause. I I guess it could be either, right? Okay, just bear with me on that. This is a big part of the people's sin, apparently. They haven't been concerned at all with equity. They haven't been concerned with right relationships. They've been fine with the powerless and the voiceless continuing to be used and trampled. That's just the cost of doing business in this world. We can't help that. That's how the world is set up. And so if we participate in those evil systems of injustice, well, 
There's just nothing we can do about it. And God says, enough. Enough. So let's keep this story in our minds, the song of the vineyard from Isaiah 5, but let's jump ahead to our gospel text, which seems strange enough when it stands alone, but as we try to connect it to Isaiah 5 is going to seem maybe even stranger, but I'm hoping that we can begin to see how these two texts might connect and inform one another. Luke chapter 12, we'll begin reading in verse 49. It's a doozy. I came to cast fire on the earth, this is Jesus speaking, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter, daughter daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus says, do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? My initial thought is, well, yeah, actually, that's exactly what I thought you were bringing. I mean, isn't that what the angels declare in, to, to the shepherds upon Christ's birth in Luke chapter 2? What do they proclaim together? Glory to God in the highest and peace. Christ coming to our world brings peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. But as we consider the context of this chapter that we've been in over the last several weeks, Luke chapter 12, there has been this constant acknowledgement that what Jesus is sending his followers out in the world to do is going to be innately disruptive. It is a disruptive life that they have been called to. I mean, I think that makes all of those do not fear statements that we read throughout chapter 12 It makes those do not fear statements make a lot more sense. Jesus is saying the kingdom that you are living in, it is going to challenge the status quo. It's going to challenge power structures in your world. It is going to be disruptive in society at large. It's it's also going to be disruptive for you personally as your view of the world begins to shake and shift and is formed into a new vision. The kingdom you are living in is going to call people to account for sin and injustice, and many aren't going to take too kindly to that. But, Jesus says, do not fear. Do not fear the one who can kill the body, but after that has nothing more to do, because death is not the worst thing imaginable for you. Separation from God is much more devastating even than death. And he goes on, when you are brought before rulers and authorities because of the disruption to the present order of things, don't be anxious, but understand that the Holy Spirit is with you and is going to give you the words to say. Jesus says, I have come to the earth and I have brought division. That sounds rather extreme and maybe even a little bit out of character for Jesus. I thought you were about peace. 
Could this possibly even be Jesus speaking? But I'm convinced that what Jesus is saying here is not, this is what I desire for the world, but this is just the simple reality of my kingdom. If you follow me, if you receive the kingdom as a gift, if you begin announcing these kingdom realities, it's going to be divisive. It's going to be disruptive. Society at large, but also to you personally, people will start splitting off. Not everyone will accept the message of the kingdom of Christ. This is an inevitable outcome. N.T. Wright put it this way as he commented on this particular passage. He said this, speaking of Jesus, he didn't want to bring division within households for the sake of it, but he knew that if people followed his way, division was bound to follow. So does Jesus bring peace? Well, of course, Jesus brings peace. Jesus brings peace to us personally, puts our souls at peace. Jesus brings peace to us relationally, and ultimately, at the consummation of all things, the kingdom will reign in peace. It is a kingdom of peace, but in the here and now, it's also disruptive. It is disrupting the present realities, disrupting the structures, and Jesus warns his followers, you need to be prepared for this. It is a disruptive kingdom precisely because of the nature of the kingdom. He goes on in verse 54, he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? The kingdom is coming. It is a gift that you freely receive. Nothing you can do to earn or achieve. But then that gift calls you into a particular set of actions. And living as participants in this kingdom that is a gift is going to be disruptive. Expect it. It is going to be disruptive. And so this is how I want to try to tie together what we read in Isaiah chapter 5 with what we've read here in Luke chapter 12. I want to begin tying these together, beginning with a question, and that is simply, is there a danger for us when justice, the idea of justice, is in vogue, when it is popular, when you can gain social capital by being concerned with justice? And it might not be surprising at this point, but I think there is a danger for us in this. Might we be more concerned when justice is invoked? Might we be more concerned with developing our own image than genuine concern for other people? True righteousness, true justice will be followed, Jesus says, by this sort of disruption. As power structures are shifting, as my heart is shifting and changing, it is disruptive. It is never easy. Justice is never easy. It is so central to the life of a follower of Jesus, and yet it is disruptive and difficult. Like discipleship in general, it costs us greatly. And I am becoming more and more convinced that 
becoming incredibly vocal about our desire for justice and letting everybody know where we stand on a particular issue and how important justice is to us is not only incomplete, but it could, in the end, be counterproductive to the real work of justice. And this is why I make that suggestion. Because we can become tempted to let others know how righteous we are by flaunting our desire for justice vocally. And if we do that, we can begin thinking, well, my work is done. Because I put a check mark in the box of justice by my identity. And as long as people know that I care about these issues, then there's really nothing more for me to do. But the real work of justice is not only disruptive societally, but it is disruptive to me personally. And if it's not disrupting me, it's probably not justice that I'm after. I like how Chris Green put it. Chris Green teaches at a university in Florida. And he recently said, ironically, I saw it on social media, posting about justice on social media, but he essentially said, if speaking about justice comes easily for us, if it makes us feel good, or if it makes us feel more righteous than somebody else, else, or if I don't have to overcome some sense of personal fear to speak it, then it's probably not loving or true, and it may not be about justice in the end. Because justice is disruptive, societally and to me personally. Justice is more than just words that we speak or positions that we hold. It will include words at times. It will include speaking out against systems that are unjust. But if all we are doing is speaking, or if all we are doing is posting, we may be missing the point. Tim Keller has argued that we are not only called to speak about justice, we are called to speak about justice, but we are called to do justice. We are called to enact justice in the real world. And he suggested that that is about becoming concerned about the most vulnerable, the poor, the marginalized members of our society. So actual people, not just theoretical groups, but actual people. And then we identify those situations and we make long-term personal sacrifices in order to serve their interests, to serve their needs and their cause. It is disruptive to our personal lives. If it's not disruptive, then it might not be justice that we are after. He went on to say that that, according to the Bible, is what it means to do justice, making long-term personal sacrifices for the sake of those who are trampled under unjust systems. So we live in a day and age, obviously, like any other age, I think, throughout the history of humankind. We live in a day and age not altogether unlike the one Isaiah addresses in his story, the song of the vineyard. Injustice, like every age, injustice in our day and age is rampant at every level of society. You find it in pretty much every institution. It is everywhere. There will be ample opportunities to speak out against injustice. But what I must acknowledge as a follower of Jesus is that while injustice is everywhere, it's also in here. And this is my first step when I think about biblical justice. 
I want to shine the spotlight back on my life before I seek to correct anybody else. It is everywhere, but it's also in here. And so, yes, when we see injustice in our world, we could even get more specific. When we see something like the continued persistent racism that continues to show its ugly head, even in the church, we, we speak out against it. We call it sin, but we go a step further, and I ask God, God, show me where I have been guilty of that. Even in ways that I'm not conscious of, show me where I have had hatred for another group of people, or maybe not even hatred, but ambivalence about another group of people that are different than me. Cleanse my heart. Forgive me of my sin. Show me where I have been guilty of this, because I may not even be aware of it. So injustice is everywhere. It's also in here. The next step, I think, injustice is everywhere, but it's also right here. So maybe instead of focusing exclusively on these big global issues, which are important issues, maybe I need to find, but, but I don't have a whole lot of ability to change some of these big-scale global injustices. But maybe if I would identify some of the unjust systems in my neighborhood, in my city, and work at bringing justice in those situations, that seems to be a much more fruitful approach to the idea of biblical justice. So injustice is everywhere. We, we could go crazy letting our, our voices be heard about unjust situations around the world. We could do it constantly. There is that much injustice. Injustice is everywhere, but it's also in here. And I need to be honest enough to deal with that in my own heart. Injustice is everywhere, but it's also right here in our neighborhood, in our city. And if I'm not willing to personally sacrifice for those causes, it seems a little disingenuous to vocally rant about my desire for justice around the world. Because doing justice requires long-term personal sacrifice on behalf of those who are being trampled under unjust systems. God hates injustice. God hates injustice. We are going to be talking about this in more detail over the next several weeks. We could think of some of the specific injustices that are rampant in our world. We could think of the sin of racism, the exploitation of the poor, or even slavery, which we are actually going to deal with specifically in coming weeks. We could think of violence against and the murder of those with no voice God hates injustice. As Psalm 146 put it, happy is the one whose help is the God of Jacob who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, who watches over the sojourner, upholds the widow and fatherless. God is a God of justice. This is central to God's character, and as followers of Jesus, we are called not only to get rid of personal sin, but to put on the character of God, our God who defends the case of the widow, who is a father to the fatherless. Kevin, if you want to come up, I want to return to our psalm for today. It was our call to worship. Just read a couple of verses. 
Psalm 82, verse 3, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Would you stand this morning? Austin, if you join me as we prepare to celebrate around our Lord's table. Again, we will be exploring these ideas in more detail in coming weeks, but for now, be reminded that the God we serve is a God of justice, a God who cares and is concerned about specific issues that specific people are facing. And as followers of Christ, we are called to put off sin, to get rid of sin, but to put something on, and that is the character of our Lord. So as we gather around the table this morning, we are being formed into the image of our Lord. We are being shaped in this meal. As we meet with Jesus, we are being called into his character. So we invite you to participate, to celebrate, but to also be shaped in this meal. We invite you. We will make two lines down the center aisle. As you get to the front, somebody will be here with the cup and the bread. The words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Thanks be to God. By way of invitation, I'd like to say a prayer for us. Almighty God, you created us in your own image. Grant us grace to contend fearlessly against evil and to make no peace with oppression and to help us to use our freedom rightly in the establishment of justice in our communities and among the nations. To the glory of your holy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today? Mm -hmm.